We all know that sometimes the answers to today's problems can be found in the past. Our guest today will take us to 19th century Italy, where we will have a glimpse into a dark page of social and medical history. At one time, up to 10% of European men had syphilis. Its victims were rumored to include Beethoven, Van Gogh, Baudelaire, Oscar Wilde, and Flaubert. But the syphilis epidemic had another side that hasn't gotten much attention. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Kurtzer. Dr. Kurtzer is provost of Brown University, where he is a professor of anthropology and Italian studies. He is a recipient of many honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, two Fulbright Fellowships, various National Science Foundation and National Institutes of Health Research Awards. His latest book is Amalia's Tale. Welcome to ReachMD. Nice to be with you. Dr. Kurtzer, Amalia's Tale takes us into a world that is unfamiliar to most of us. Tell us a bit about the setting. Well, it takes place in Italy in the late 19th century, and there was a phenomenon in Europe that today is largely unknown but was extremely important back then, namely the mass abandonment of newborn babies, so that in Italy in the mid-19th century in cities like Florence and Milan, about one out of every three babies was abandoned at birth to foundling homes, and throughout much of Europe there was a whole complex system of foundling homes because in the 19th century, the only way to keep a newborn baby alive who was abandoned was to find a wet nurse for her. So this was a system invented for trying to keep those babies alive, and it affected thousands and thousands of lives. Why were so many babies abandoned? Well, there were various reasons. In the Papal States, for example, now this is somewhat earlier, the Papal States ran from Rome to Bologna through the middle of Italy for a thousand years until... 1870. But for example, in the Papal States, of which Bologna, which is the setting for my book, uh, was part, the church required unwed mothers to abandon their children to family homes. They were not allowed to keep their children. But by the late 19th century, industrialization was leading to larger and larger numbers of women working in factories, particularly textile factories. And as they found it incompatible to work in the factories and have babies, the foundling homes also began to take in large numbers of children of working-class mothers, at least in some of Italy's cities and beyond. Now, were the illegitimate babies and their mothers treated differently in other parts of Europe, aside from the Papal States? Well, the foundling home system began in Italy hundreds of years ago, but then went out to much of Europe, particularly Catholic Europe. In Protestant Europe, curiously, there was somewhat different norms but it spread not only to places like uh, France and Spain and Portugal and Greece, but also to uh, Russia as well, which had very large foundling homes, particularly in Moscow and St. Petersburg. So a thousand years ago, they were set up to take in poor children. But by the 16th century, they'd come to be identified with the problem of illegitimacy, and the concern was that unwed women would be so embarrassed in their family honor, so threatened, that they would either try to have an abortion or try to commit infanticide. And so against these evils, the uh, church and uh, other civic societies became involved looking for a solution, and they thought they found the solution in the foundling home. So it was in an effort to protect the babies. That's right. Initially, it was said that the first uh, foundling home, or one of the first, was set up in Rome hundreds of years ago when the Pope heard about increasing number of babies who were being caught in the fishing nets in the Tiber River 
and he was worried about their souls, that from a religious point of view, the most important thing was that these children at least be baptized, even if they would die. So their health, both spiritual health and also material health, were involved. Now, what was known about syphilis at this time in the 19th century? Well, of course, it had been around for a long time. It apparently first showed up in Europe, actually in Italy, in 1493, presumably brought back by sailors who had been with Columbus. At least that's the the main theory of having a New World origin. And in the early decades, it was particularly virulent, led to uh, mass death. So it had been around for hundreds of years by the 19th century. They still didn't know exactly what caused it, and much less did they know what the cure was. So largely they were using various kinds of mercury and other cures that often were more deleterious than helpful. Mercury? How did they give mercury? It was given in different forms. It could be given on the skin in a kind of ointment. It was given in various kinds of injections and various kinds of inhalations. So they're really ingenious in finding ways in which people could be treated with mercury. But people had very strong reactions physically to it. They would said to, for example, salivate literally gallons. Their teeth would fall out and there would also be internal damage as well. So the doctors worked very hard to try by the late 19th century to find a way to give, from their point of view, the minimum mercury they needed to to have an effect without causing all those other organic difficulties. So if the mercury didn't kill you, maybe you'd survive. (laughs) That's right. So the mercury was often worse. And uh, there's still, I think, some controversy about what effect. I mean, I think Many thought that there was at least some symptomatic virtue to certain kinds of mercury treatment. Of course, it didn't get at the underlying problem. Let's turn our attention to what happened to your main character, Amalia. Please fill us in. Well, as I mentioned earlier, in order to keep these babies alive, these thousands of babies who each year were being abandoned at Europe's foundling homes, they needed to find wet nurses. So you needed to find women who were capable of nursing. So there were two kinds of women that basically were qualified. One, women who recently had a birth but whose baby had died, and the other women who had weaned their baby because they didn't believe that a infant should be given to a woman who was still nursing her own baby and because they thought she would give priority to her own baby. So in the Bologna, the case of Bologna, which I'm looking at, had been the second largest city in the Papal States, now in the newly unified Italian state by the late 19th century. It was one of the major cities. Bologna had a foundling home that had been around for hundreds of years and was taking in several hundred children each year in the foundling home and therefore looking for women to wet nurse them. For poor women, peasant women in the mountains outside of the city, this was really the only way they could make a financial contribution bringing in cash to their families. In fact, for these peasant families in many of these villages, not only in Italy but France and elsewhere, It was, in these communities, the only way to bring in cash income. So the foundling home would look for such women, would place the newly abandoned babies with them, and then offer them monthly payments to nurse them. And then if they kept them after the period of nursing, would continue those monthly payments up to 15 years when the child was 15 years old, so they would be treated as kind of foster children. The particular case of Amalia is, in this context, Amalia was a 23-year-old illiterate peasant woman, so she was kind of typical of these women who were desperate for the money offered by the foundling home. She went down to the city of Bologna from her mountain residence, 20 miles or so away, and she told them she was there to take in a baby. When they gave her the baby, though, she noticed the baby looked very sickly, and she said that she wanted a healthy one. They told her that she either had to take that baby or she would have to go home 
with no baby, and she couldn't afford to do that, not least because she didn't have the train fare to get back home. She had assumed she was getting a baby, and the foundling home paid in that way for her women who took the children. So reluctantly, she took the child, and she took the child back home to her village, and within a couple of weeks or so, she noticed some sores on the body of the child, and within a week or so after that, she went to see the local town doctor who told her to immediately take the baby back. He recognized that she was at great risk for contracting syphilis because he was sure that the baby had syphilis. And this, in fact, is what happened. And this is one of the things that even uh, doctors today often don't know about, namely that syphilis could be contracted in this way, that is, from a baby who was born with syphilis to an unrelated woman who was nursing the baby. Was her story an isolated event? No, it turns out it was not at all an isolated event, even though it's unknown today. The foundling homes and the hospitals and the doctors did everything they could to quiet this up. As you mentioned before, a rather substantial minority of Europeans at the time had syphilis, and so a certain proportion of these abandoned babies, who often coming from unwed mothers, were the product of either prostitutes or the product of women who got pregnant from passing soldiers and other populations that had high incidence of syphilis. So it seems that at least 5% of these babies, if not more, were born with syphilis. Now, one of the things about babies born with it is that it didn't necessarily show up immediately. This is before they had uh, various kinds of tests for blood and microscopic tests for syphilis. They were just going by appearance. And so the family home doctors had a really uh, great conundrum, that is, to be sure that they wouldn't pass on syphilis to the women who were taking these children in, they would have to wait about three months to see if the child developed syphilis. But if they waited three months without giving the child to a wet nurse, the child would die. And so they erred essentially on having the women take the risk. And of course, the women were taking the risk for the most part without knowing they had that risk, mm. and when cases like the case of Amalia came about, it was in the interest of the doctors not to bring any attention with it because they were afraid of two things. One, they might get sued, but also they were concerned that the supply of wet nurses would dry up if word got out of the great risk. Well, for those of our listeners who'd like to learn more about this, I strongly suggest Dr. Kurtzer's book, Amalia's Tale. Thank you so much for being on our show today. You're welcome. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 